As we continue on in this book, it's important to sort of um, just remember how shocking this book actually is. Um, the exiles returned from Babylon in about beginning in 538 BC. And by the time that Malachi writes, which is 40, 50, 70, 80 years later, we're not exactly sure, um, the passion that for God that had been so evident in that first returning group of Jews from Babylon had really begun to evaporate, had begun to dissipate. The passion for God was um, literally just sort of disappearing, and Israel was sliding once again into nominalism and lukewarmness and compromise. And it's shocking. It, it literally is shocking to think that a group of people who had suffered so incredibly just a couple of generations before this are beginning to act again exactly the same way as their forefathers had acted and that caused God's judgment upon Israel. And so the question we have to ask is how does this happen? How in the world does this happen to a group of people who come from such passionate, committed followers of, of Yahweh? How did they slip back into sin? How did their passion for God cool into lukewarm religion? And I think the answer is not one specific thing. The answer is not a single choice, but a series of choices that they made individually as, as in a, people, a people. And those choices moved them slowly, almost imperceptibly, from a position of deep commitment to God and passion for his cause into a place of lukewarmness and nominalism and apathy and unfaithfulness and compromise. They didn't set out to become lukewarm. They didn't make a decision to become lukewarm. It just slowly happened. And so the message of Malachi, Malachi is, is very applicable to us in this regard, that many of us slowly slip into lukewarmness. Maybe you think about the day that you were saved and the excitement and the sense of joy and the enthusiasm you had for the Lord and the gospel and, and, and the level of commitment that you had. And you look at your life now and you see that, yeah, there is a difference. There, there, there has been a, uh, a lessening of that passion, a lessening of that enthusiasm. We can become indifferent. Apathy can slip in. We can become heart, heart, half-hearted and lukewarm and not even know it sometimes. Lukewarmness is not easily diagnosed in our lives. And so what I want to do this morning is use this passage of Scripture to examine how this lukewarmness was manifest in the lives of these, these people 2,500 years ago. I want us to think about the choices that they made, the steps that they took that led them slowly into this place of nominalism and unfaithfulness and lukewarmness. So very quickly, six things from this passage of scripture that led Israel to lukewarmness, six things that we need to ask ourselves are happening in our lives, or are we somewhere along this continuum towards lukewarmness? The first thing is this, Israel had forgotten their identity. Israel had forgotten who they were, their primary identity. 
The prophet says this, Have you not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has become faithless. He's saying to these people, look, remember who you are. God is our Father. Yahweh created us. We are family. That's who we are. This is what defines us. This is who we are, the people of God. And I think this is for them where unfaithfulness had begun. When their identity began to be defined in terms other than this. And for us too, this is where unfaithfulness begins in our journey. We forget our, our primary identity. We forget who we are fundamentally. Fundamentally, who are we? We are blood-bought children of God. That's who you are. You may be a nurse, you may be a teacher, you may be a student, you may be, it doesn't matter. You may be a husband, a wife. Those identities are important. They define you in some respects. But fundamentally, most importantly, at your core, you are a blood-bought child of God. And by his grace, you have, been, you have been incorporated into this family. God has made you part of his bride that is called Hope Markham. That's who you are. That is the most critical identity that you have. That's, that's who you are as an individual. A child of God engrafted into the family of God. And when you think of yourselves, that's how you've got to think of yourselves if you don't want to become lukewarm. If you don't want to allow nominalism and lukewarmness and compromise into your life, you've got to keep that at the forefront of your thinking. Who am I? Every morning you get out of bed. Who am I? I am a child of God purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ for his church, for his kingdom, for his cause. And if we lose sight of that, if that begins to become blurry in our minds, if other sorts of identities begin to take precedence in our thinking and we begin to live our lives based on those identities rather than our fundamental identities as blood-bought children of God purchased for the, for the bride of Christ, if that is not who we are, then we are going to begin a journey into lukewarmness. In order to live a faithful life, you must remember who you are. You must remember what you have been called to. And if you take your eye off that ball, if something else becomes a priority in your life, then it's the first step, I believe, in becoming lukewarm, in becoming nominal as a Christian. You know, God saved you for himself. He saved you for a relationship. He saved you for the church. He saved you to be part of his family. He saved you to be his child. That's why you are alive. Being a dad is important. Running a business is important. Being a wife or a husband is important. All of those things are important. But they all come under that overarching umbrella. They are all subsumed under that one umbrella 
that we are the children of God, purchased for the people of God, to be part of this fellowship. You know, you don't come to church. Church is not something that you do on a Sunday or on a, on a Wednesday night or whenever you attend. It's not a place. The church is us. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. This is our family. This is where we belong. This is where we thrive. This is the hothouse. This is the greenhouse in which we are called to grow. We are called to live in relationship with our Father through the Spirit of God, to live in moment-by-moment relationship with Him. And if either of those two priorities cease to be focus of our life, the focus of our life, we will become nominal. Like Christians don't, you know, a newly saved Christian doesn't going, go from being really passionate about Jesus and passionate about the church to, to robbing liquor stores with the hell's angels and overnight. Like it doesn't happen that way. It, it begins when we begin to lose our sense of who we are after God saved us. Other priorities and other, other, other things begin to take precedence in our life and our thinking. And we lose that fundamental focus of who God has created us to be. We're new creatures in Christ. We've been born again. We have been transformed, regenerated. We are brand new. And if we forget that, that's the first step. It's the first step into nominalism. God's given you a new tribe, a new culture, a new people, a new identity, a new self. Don't let the cult of individual or self-actualization rob you of the truth that God made you new. And that is critical. We are the children of God. First. Second, they relegated God to second place. They relegated God to second place. Look what he says. Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Judah had profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Now, we talked about what was happening in last week's message. And people were bringing lame and blind and crippled sacrifices into the temple to worship. They were giving God their leftovers. They were giving God the second best. They weren't giving him the best breeding stock. They were giving him the lame and the blind and the, and the broken in sacrifice. And what the prophet says is they're being unfaithful to the covenant. They're profaning the sanctuary by giving God their second best. Now, they would never, ever, ever have thought of not worshiping. Never. Oh, we've got to go to worship because that's what we do. That's who we are. That's, that's what our family's all about. We go to the temple. And they would never, ever, ever have thought of bringing a pig. I can tell you that right now. They would never have done that because God had said he had forbidden it. You just don't do that. But they got comfortable giving him the second best. They got comfortable with God being one of, a, of many priorities. Do you see the connection? If you lose that sense of identity, if you forget who you are, other things become really, really important, as well as God. 
So it's not like God loses his, his place in our lives. It's not that he, he, he isn't important. He's just one of this pantheon of important things in my life. So I'm going to go to the temple, and I'm going to give a sacrifice. I'm just not going to give him my best. And that's where nominalism takes us. We choose not to give our best. And our leaders tolerate us not giving our best. Lukewarmness happens when God is still a priority. Lukewarmness happens when God is still important. He's just not that important. He's not most important. He becomes one of many important things in our journey. I want you to go over to Matthew with me just for a second, because in this passage of Scripture, Matthew's the next book over. Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about, I think, one of the ways that we can diagnose lukewarmness, and it has to do with money. And we'll talk about money next week, talk about tithing next week. But listen to what Jesus says in this whole section from verse 19 and following. I won't read it all to you, but he's talking about money. He's talking about where your treasure is. And then he says this in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. It's impossible. You can't have two priorities in your life. You can't have two number ones. No one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. One of the things that becomes a priority in our journey and one of the things that can easily lead us into lukewarmness and compromise and unfaithfulness and nominalism is the love of money. And we never admit to ourselves, oh no, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus more than anything else. But by your actions, it's easy to tell how much hold this potential God has on you. And the reality is you cannot serve that God and Yahweh. You cannot serve Jesus and money. They can have equal place in your life. Next, we're going to talk a little bit about how then tithing becomes so critical and so crucial in helping us deal with this God of materialism, this, this lust that so, is so powerful in our culture and often in our lives. In verse 33 of this passage of Scripture, Jesus says this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Make that your priority. If that isn't number one, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then we are beginning down the path of lukewarmness. And it makes sense, right? If we are blood-bought children of God, that's who we are. That's our, that's our identity. Created and shaped and saved for the bride of Christ to accomplish the work of the church in the world. If that is our identity, how, how is it not second nature that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Like one flows right into the other, does it not? It's just a natural outflowing. If this is who I am, that's what I do. If this is what God has created me for, this is how I give expression to that. I seek the kingdom. 
the advancing of his kingdom, his cause in this world, the sharing of the gospel, and his righteousness in my life. And so you begin to diagnose lukewarmness when you think, is something else more important? Do I define myself with another metric? And because of that metric, is something else taking precedent in my life? Now, money's not the only thing, but it's a pretty good indication of where your heart is. Thirdly, they allowed negative, ungodly influences. Israel opened themselves up to negative and ungodly influences. Look at what he says in the second half of verse 11. Judas profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. The next step in this slow slide into compromise and lukewarmness is that the men of Israel were marrying foreign women. Now, there was nothing wrong with that. Think of, we just went through the book of Ruth. Who was Ruth? She was a foreign woman who came into Israel and was accepted. Why? Because she had previously accepted the God of Israel. Your God, Naomi, will be my God, and your people will be my people. She, she was a convert to Israel, and thus she became appropriate for Boaz. Rahab was the same way. And many other women married into Israel. But in their coming into Israel, they bowed the knee and received the God of Israel as their God. The issue was, the issue was that the law forbade a Jew from marrying a woman who was not a convert to Judaism. And the obvious reason for that is clear. It's the dangers of an ungodly influence. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3, God said, you shall not intermarry with them, speaking about foreign women, for they, were, they will turn your sons from following me. The Lord had given clear prohibition against marrying outside the faith because of the influence of ungodly women on the men of Israel. And so the third step that we discern here the third step that Israel had taken is that they had become unconscious of the negative effect, of the dangerous effect of outside influence in their lives, ungodly influence in their lives. They had become uncritical and unwise and had exposed themselves to ungodly influences. Now, obviously, the most the most immediate impact for us is this, that if you're going to marry, never marry outside the faith. If you want to go from being a passionate Christian to just being shipwrecking your faith, marry a non-believer. The Bible is explicit. Paul talking in, in 1 Corinthians to the young, young widows, he says, get married. It's a good thing to get married, but only in the faith. Only in the faith. Evangelistic dating is a bad idea. But there's a broader influence, there's a broader application here about influence. Paul says in that same passage, that same book in 1 Corinthians, that bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. And it's not just true of kids, it's true of all of us. 
And whether we're keeping company with people who are a bad influence or we're watching that bad influence through the sewer that is often our television sets, we are being influenced negatively. And we've got to be careful. The world is constantly bombarding us with messages that are anti-Christian, that are ungodly. And that influence is impacting us all the time. We've got to guard ourselves. We'll talk about that in a second because the, the author of Malachi says it twice near the end. Guard yourself. Guard yourself. Be careful. It used to be that June was a great month of the year. Now, I, I don't like June anymore because it's Pride Month. We spend one-twelfth of the year celebrating what God calls an abomination. And we've got to love the homosexuals. We've got to love people who are gender confused. Christians love sinners. That's what we do. God loved us. We love them. But, but listen, don't, don't be beguiled. Pride Month is a concerted effort to normalize what God calls perversion and to convince us to celebrate what God says is deviant and is destructive both individually and societally. And you just see it all the time in the messaging, on television, and on the news. I was watching the, this totally is not in my notes, but I was just watching the baseball game a couple of days ago, and that, that one Blue Jay who sent out a, who tweeted out, I think it was, or maybe on his Instagram, just a devotional from a pastor about, about the dangers of homosexual lifestyle, he was forced to apologize for saying something so awful, so terrible, so wrong, so intolerant and unloving. And you know, that, that cumulatively can easily influence how we think about what God says is right and wrong. And I'm just saying this, if you, if you wanna be faithful to the Lord, if you want to stay faithful to him, guard your life, guard your kids, guard your computer, protect them, protect them. Because as soon as we begin to think the way the world thinks, as soon as we begin to think in a worldly manner, we're a long way down the path, a long way down the path. The next thing that we see is that they had grown comfortable with hypocrisy. Look at 13 through 15 with me. He says this, and the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he's no longer regarding the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hands. But you say, why does he not? And here's the answer. Because the Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of his spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit. So guard your spirit. So Malachi says this. He says, look, look at what you're doing. You're going into the, into the temple and you're offering these offerings second-rate offerings, and you're crying big crocodile tears because somehow God is not responding the way you want him to respond. He's, he's not receiving your offering. He's not blessing you the way that you want to be blessed. 
And they say, why? Why is God doing this? And God answers through the prophet by saying, because you have been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. You've broken covenant with her. God blessed you. He gave a portion of your spirit. He witnessed that union. And now you have broken that covenant. Now, it's impossible to miss the irony here in this passage of Scripture. Think about it. The men of Israel wanted the God of Israel to be faithful to them and keep his covenantal promises to them. All the while, they are breaking their covenant promises to their wives by being unfaithful to them. Like, Do you see the irony? Do you see how subtle this, this is? Oh, God, why aren't you blessing me? We're in covenant relationship together. I want you to, you know. All the while, they're saying to their wives, I'm tired of you. I'm done with you. But, honey, we have a covenant. God witnessed this and gave a portion of his spirit in making us one. Ah, whatever. I'm going to go look for another wife. Like, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. These men were abandoning their wives, defying God's law, pursuing other women that they thought, they would, that they thought would make them happy, and that they didn't feel the slightest hesitancy, the slightest reluctance, didn't have the slightest compunction about going into the temple quite boldly, and asking God to bless them and do for them what they were unwilling to do for their wives. You know, this disconnect between sin and the naive expectation that God is somehow obligated to bless us is, is, is a huge step in this process of becoming lukewarm. When we feel that we have legitimately the right to go into God's presence and ask him to bless us while we are nurturing sin in our soul, it's just like it's, it's, it's pretty lukewarm. It's very lukewarm. So you know that you're sliding into nominalism when you feel no compunction about asking God for his grace and his favor, and his love, while happily living in our sin and our carnality. Or said most simply, we know we are sliding to lukewarmness when we rest in God's grace and dismiss God's law. We know that we have slidden a long way down into this position of compromise when we revel in God's grace and dismiss or despise or ignore the law of God. So how did it happen? How, how did this happen? How could they get to a place where they would boldly walk into the temple with their second wives and their second-rate sacrifices and honestly expect God to bless them? How? How do you get to that place? How do you get to a place of such hypocrisy. And the only answer that I can come up with is this. They had lost sight of who God was. 
they had clearly lost sight of who Yahweh was. They had reimagined him in their own image. Somehow they had come to believe that he was like them. They began to reimagine a more tolerant, a more easygoing, a more loving, less holy God. And if there's anything that's rampant within the evangelical today, it's this thinking. It's this thinking. Where we elevate grace. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he's just dying for you to come to him. That would make him so happy if you accepted him into your heart. And he'll bless you and take you to heaven. You know, we elevate grace at the expense of the law. At the expense of a call to holiness and righteousness and a transformed life. And we call it cheap grace. And I guess the point that I want to make here is this this morning. That if Jesus is Savior, then he must be Lord. Like You can't have it both ways. You can't have your sin and salvation. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. If he's Savior, he must also be Lord. I don't know of another time in church history where this, this whole law-grace balance has been so out of kilter. God saved us by his grace in order that we might live the law, that we might obey him, that we might live a righteous life. And if somehow in your Christian journey you can sort of revel in this idea that you've been saved by grace and grace is so enormous and so big and so fulsome and so expansive in your journey that you can live how you please. Man, you're a long way down this path to lukewarmness. The fifth thing we're getting close to the end, is that Israel had forgotten God's goal in saving them. Look at 15b when, he's, when he says, what was, God's, what was God seeking? Second half, verse 15. So what was God seeking? Godly offspring. What was God's goal? Well, that Israel would grow. God's goal has always been being fruitful and multiply. Like told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Noah comes out of the earth, be fruitful and multiply. The reason that battle happened is because they didn't want to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Like the Great Commission, be fruitful and multiply. Like that's who we are as Christians. Raise up godly offspring. Israel is going to spread. It's going to grow. This is God's goal. More people to worship. Godly marriages would produce godly children which would grow Israel. And this was always God's goal. It always has been God's goal. It's still God's goal today. Yet God's goal was being forfeited on the altar of their lusts for foreign women. Because that was not going to produce godly offspring. That was not going to produce God's goals. That was not going to accomplish what God was passionate about. And so the point is this. They had lost the vision Somehow they had lost the narrative. 
they had somehow lost the goal and had replaced it with something very different, birthed in their own souls, in their own hearts. You know that lukewarmness has taken root in your heart when you have no passion left for seeing God's goals accomplished in this world. That's when you know. That's when you know. That's when you know that, that it's sort of come to the end. When you could care less about God's goals and you're so wrapped up in your goals that the two are worlds apart. Right? God saved you. Give you a new identity, put you in the church in order that you would become a means by which this world would be transformed. That's why you are. That's why you're here. It's not ultimately to get you to heaven. Well, that's a big part of it. It's not ultimately that you would have a happy marriage. Well, that's a big part of it. Foundationally, it is about transforming our world, being fruitful and multiplying. Like that's, if you, you, almost, you, you find the dominion mandate, which you see at the beginning of Genesis, at the end of Matthew. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So make the disciples, make, make the nations discipled. Go and do it. And that's why he saved us. That's why he has done what he has done in our lives. And when that begins to fade and eventually fades to black, and you feel no call on your life, you don't think about your gifts, you don't think about why God saved you, you don't think about how you can be advancing the kingdom, man, you're lukewarm. And how did they get there? How did they get there? Well, he says it twice. He says, they've left their hearts unguarded. They've left their hearts unguarded. He says, so guard yourselves and your spirit. Let none of you be faithless to his wife of his, of his youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her says, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves and your spirit and do not be faithless. Guard yourself in your spirit. Guard yourself in your heart. Guard yourself. Wake up. Wake up. Guard your affections. Guard what you fall in love with. Guard your heart. Faithlessness happens when we don't guard our hearts. If you're governed by an unguarded heart, you will be in love with all kinds of things. James, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's so easy for an unguarded heart to fall in love with possessions or power or people or praise or position. And it leads us to a place where we are absolutely dispassionate for the things of God and for the person of Christ. And our passions are so caught up, so enamored by the things of the world. 
to the point that you look at yourself and you say, I don't know. Am I in Christ? Am I in Christ? I've lost my first love. I've forgotten who I am. I'm comfortable giving God second best. I allow allow all kinds of corrupting influences to shape my thinking, shape my values, shape me. I'm comfortable with hypocrisy. I love the gospel. I'm just not sure about this obedience thing. I got no goals to advance the kingdom of God whatsoever. And my heart has gone after so many worldly things. I think in many respects, that's what the church of Laodicea was. Think about them. How long had that church been in existence? We know Paul wrote them a letter. It's lost to us now. We don't, it's no longer extant, but he did. I think that probably the same time he wrote Colossians. And there they were, not too long after that, in love with so many other things besides Christ. They're neither hot nor cold, he said. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I'll vomit you out. That wasn't their impression of themselves. I'm, we're rich. We have need of nothing. And God says, look, you're, you're in such trouble. You have no idea. You're poor and you're blind and you're wretched and you're miserable and you're naked and you don't even know it. You don't even know it. Lukewarmness, compromise, nominalism has so blinded you, you can't even see. Then he says some of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have a meal with him, fellowship with him, and he with me. Now, let me say this. That has nothing to do with evangelism. It hadn't when it was written. It doesn't now, and it never will. It isn't a call for people to open their dead, stony heart to Jesus. It's a call for lukewarm Christians to wake up and hear the still, small voice of Jesus saying, come back. Come back. Repent. I want a relationship again. Come back. Understand who you are. I saved you. You're a blood-bought child of God through my blood. Come back. I saved you for the church. That's who you are. Come back. I want your best. I don't want your leftovers. I want your best. I'm the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's God himself who's knocking right now. Come back. Give me your all. Don't allow corrupting influences. Say no to the garbage in the computer. Say no to the garbage in the television. I want you back.
Don't live a hypocritical life. Don't elevate grace at the expense of law. I saved you to be holy. Pursue holiness. Revel in grace, but pursue holiness. And remember, I saved you to change the world. I gave you gifts. I called you out of darkness. I want to use you as long as you have breath to make an impact on the world. So let's begin to pursue godly goals together. See, that's his invitation. And guard your heart. Guard your heart because it's happened once, it can happen again. Don't let it happen again. Guard your heart. This invitation to have a meal with Jesus, I think is a, in some senses is a reflection of this opportunity that we're going to have right now to celebrate communion together. This is an opportunity for us to repent. As, as the children of God who perhaps have wandered, perhaps just a little way down the path, or perhaps some of us, you know it, you're a long way down that path. And you've got so comfortable with giving God second You've gotten so comfortable with the hypocrisy, talking about grace and wallowing in your sin. You get so comfortable. He's calling you back. And we come back at communion when we remember the price that was paid to purchase us. When we remember what Jesus did on that cross to save us. If that doesn't break your heart and cause you to come running back, and there's something wrong with your heart, and you need to get saved. But if you're a child of God, I offer you today, symbolically, through communion, a genuine relationship, a genuine reintroduction to Jesus. He stands at your heart's door, and he wants fellowship. He wants lordship. He wants control. And I'm asking you to give it back. Give it to him today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this passage of scripture and I thank you for your call on my life, my heart this morning to turn and to come back. To fall in love again with you like we did the first time to turn our back on the world and to become passionate about Jesus and his love and his cross and his sacrifice for us. Lord, in a few moments, we're going to distribute these elements and they are symbolic of your death and on our behalf, your, the sacrifice you made for us. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that as we take them and then in a few minutes as we take them together, that you would minister to us that we would hear that still small voice, that we'd hear that soft knocking on our hearts and that we would respond and that we would repent, that we would get right with you. Meet us, I pray, in these next moments, Holy Spirit, I ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name.